0: is on. Okay, I got my thumbs up. Well, thank you all for allowing me to speak to you this morning a little bit out of God's word. It's such a pleasure to be back in Huntsville. Um, I love this church and and I have for a long time. So I want to briefly open up the service by talking out of the book of Nehemiah, chapter eight, using verse 10 as my home text, the latter part of that verse, where it simply says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a Bible verse that I think we're all very familiar with. It's one you see on coffee cups. It's one you see sometimes on T-shirts. But I feel like the context around this verse is something that we maybe are not as familiar with. But just recently, it became of interest to me to study it out. And I think it's really relevant for us today because we're living in a time in America when there's a lot of interest in revival. There's signs of revival, and there's people praying for revival across our country now uh, more so than there has been in many years, I believe. And so in the immediate context of this passage, our home passage, the joy of the Lord is your strength, I believe we see three things you need for a revival, and that's my title. Three things you need for revival as we focus on the joy of the Lord being our strength. And we read starting in verse 8 of Nehemiah chapter 8, and then read down to the end of verse 12, of our text. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tierschapa, which means governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then Nehemiah said unto the people, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to send portions to those that didn't have enough and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. So three things you need for revival. The context of Nehemiah chapter 8 is indeed a revival. Now, I, I, I can't help but just notice the fact that you all are in a Bible study right now from What I've heard on God's sovereignty God's sovereignty has been moving Without a doubt In incredible ways To bring the people to this very point in time Now we're reading in Nehemiah Which chronologically is one of the newest books In the Old Testament You know There was, there was two major captivities of the Israelites One uh, by the Assyrians And one by the Babylonians Chronologically this is after Both of those captivities are over So God's sovereign hand has brought the people working through the decrees of kings to this very point where we are today, where we're experiencing revival. And the people are back in the homeland. In Ezra chapter 1, we heard about a king named Artaxerxes, or sorry Cyrus, that by the stroke of his pen allowed the people to leave Babylonian captivity. In the first chapter of Nehemiah, we read about one of Ezra's successors named Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes is the one that gave Nehemiah the the decree that gave him the opportunity to go back and rebuild the wall, which is what Nehemiah is all about. You know, the people had been in captivity for years, so their city was in a state of destruction. The temple was in a state of destruction, and so Ezra focuses on rebuilding the temple, but also the wall around their city was in a state of disrepair, and so Nehemiah focuses on rebuilding that wall but it was God's hand. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8 says, It was according to the good hand of God upon Nehemiah. It was God's hand upon Nehemiah that caused Artaxerxes to make the decision he made. And it was God's sovereignty and God's providence that was moving in incredible ways. Through kings that... Honestly, there's no biblical evidence that Cyrus or Artaxerxes were, were believers in God. But God moved through them nonetheless because the king's heart... Is in the hand of the Lord, and He turns it whithersoever He wills because God is sovereign. And He was bringing them to the place of Nehemiah chapter 8 where revival takes place. So, this book, the, chapters 1 through 8 or 7, have been talking about the wall being rebuilt. And now the wall is rebuilt, the gates are put back in place, and we're experiencing revival. You call it, call it the Watergate revival because they're standing here at the Watergate. And now the law is being read. And that's the first thing you need for a revival. You need the law of God. Now, some of us are surprised because we're like, we don't need the law. We need grace. Oh, yes, we do need grace. We need grace incredibly. I just got my uh, 70th anniversary Baptist Bible Hour Grace, Grace, and More Grace CD, and I've been listening to it in the car. But it's the law that shows us. It's God's law that shows us that we need grace. And the reason why I say we need God's law for revival it's here in the text. Look with me in verse 8. So the context here is Nehemiah, Ezra, and the priests are standing up on a pulpit of wood just like this to kind of give you a picture. So there's a revival taking place. Ezra, Nehemiah, the priest, there, it says here in verse uh, 1 of our text that they're standing behind a pulpit. The people are all out in the crowd just like this. And, I mean, there's, they've been in captivity for years. God's law has been just probably thrown back in a closet somewhere and, or maybe in a, in a and a wagon is covered in dust. But now they've, they've, they've taken out God's word. They're, they're putting it on display in front of the people, and they're reading it for the first time maybe in years, and the people are understanding what's being read. So this is the context when we read in verse 8. Nehemiah and the priests and the Levites, they, they read, it's Nehemiah 8.8, 8, they read in the book of the law distinctly, and they gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading. So the first thing we see during this revival is the law being read. We see the law. But how is it being read? Distinctly. And it's giving the sits. And it's causing people to understand. And friends, that's what preaching is supposed to be. If someone gets up here and it's like, I have no idea what they were talking about the entire time. It must have been really deep and really good because I don't know what was going on. That's not what preaching is supposed to be. It's supposed to be distinct. It's supposed to be giving the sense. It's supposed to be causing people to understand what's being read. And as the law is being read, people are understanding it. And they're being convicted by it. Keep reading. Verse 9. Nehemiah, which is the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, taught the people out of the law. And they told them, this day is holy unto the Lord your God. Don't mourn nor weep. Now, another important point. If you look with me in verse 1, this is the first day of the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month. Now, that's important because this was a holy day unto the Lord. Now, people didn't know this beforehand because they hadn't been reading God's law. But way back in the book of Leviticus, um, chapter 23, verse 24, it's said that the seventh month, the first day of the month, is the feast of the blowing of the trumpets. So it is a holy day unto the Lord. But notice that the priests use holy day as basis for being happy or or having joy. It says, this is a holy day unto the Lord. Don't mourn nor weep because this day is holy. Now, how can a holy day mean joy for us? After all, the people are weeping for what reason? They're hearing the words of the law. Look at the latter half of verse 9. All the people are weeping when they're hearing the words of the law. And this morning, when I was in the car coming down, I was listening to Baptist Bible Hour, and then heard the verse read again over here by the good brother, and I and I was just blessed by that because um, J- James chapter five verse nine, where James writes, "Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness." This verse made an impression upon me because there is joy coming. There's joy when we when we understand the gospel and that. The Lord is our stronghold, and he's our place of refuge from God's own wrath because he loves us. But there first has to be a mourning. The first has to be a weeping. There first has to be an affliction when we hear the words of the law because we we're sinful. The law shows us our need of sin. So yes, there is joy in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength, but first we have to see our sin and repent and know that The Bible tells us to be afflicted and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy into heaviness. Many people are just walking around in this world like kind of just happy and, you know, ignorance is bliss. I'm just kind of living my life acting like there's not a holy God out there that has a law that demands obedience to that law. So when we realize that, there is a weeping that comes. There is a conviction. John chapter 16, verse 8 says that when the Spirit comes, He will convict men concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. How's the Spirit going to convict you? With God's law. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul writes that if the law of God had not come, He wouldn't have known He was a sinner. Paul writes, Unless the law had come, I had not known what sin was. The Spirit's going to convict men concerning sin. And he's going to use the law of God to do it. Uh, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of being able to intern with a federal prosecutor and sit in on some, some jury trials, some um, plea agreements, things like that. And I've never once seen a judge convict somebody and then not tell them what was wrong. Oh, bad. Put them away for 10 years. Not telling you what it is, though. Because... The worldly judge, I mean, he's aiming to show this person, here's what you did wrong. Here's what we can do to fix it. How much more then is God, the righteous judge, going to show us from the word of God the sins that we've committed? He's going to convict us concerning sin by showing us our sin in the law of God. And that's what's happening to the people here. That's just what's happening right here. Because what does the law say? Let's think about a few things it says. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That one convicts me, because sometimes I worship myself more than I worship God by serving myself. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of your God in vain. These are just some of the things that the people are hearing at the Watergate Revival. I've taken God's name in vain. I've thrown it around too loosely before. Fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. That one convicts me. I mean, I, I was the first to... Um, I'll be the first to admit that I, I would not have been able to make it through either of my college degrees without my mother's help. She is basically like my administrator. She, she, she makes, sure my, you know, makes sure my tuition gets paid, and then she you know, cooks for us too and cares for all of us. But sometimes I talk to my mother worse than I talk to anyone else because I feel close to her, and it's like, well, we're close, so I can just talk to her however she wants. That is a violation of the fifth commandment, and I should repent of that. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. I think you know, we've, that's a very common sin in our country. But now many of us are like, okay, well, I, I don't know what John's problem is because he, I honor my mother. Um, I'm, I'm good with the first commandment. I, you know, I, I, I don't have other gods. I, I love the Lord. Third commandment, I don't say God's name in vain. So I'm good. Tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. Everyone's killed by the tenth commandment. Because we've all lusted after something that we don't have. We've all coveted. Paul says in Colossians, covetousness is idolatry. So if you've coveted, you have worshipped another god. You've worshipped yourself because covetousness is idolatry. And so everyone's killed by the 10th commandment. Nehemiah 9.26 in the same context writes that these people were people that had put the law of God behind their back. How many times have I done that? Just put it behind my back. Like a behind the back. we got basketball players here. Behind the back pass. It's like, I didn't even realize he'd pass the ball. I didn't even realize the law was there. It was behind my back. That's, that's sometimes where I put God's law. But When the spirit comes, he convicts us concerning sin out of the law. So that's why the law is the first thing we need for a revival. Because it, unless the law comes, we're not going to know what sin is. But the law is telling us specifically what to do. And we haven't done it. And so that's why the second most important thing we need for revival is the gospel. We need the gospel. And that's what I want to show you is here in the Old Testament sense of that word. Because suddenly there's a major shift going back to our our context in, in Nehemiah 8. And then I want you to notice that there's three different occasions where the priests use Holy Day as basis for joy. Now that happens for the first time in verse 9 this day is holy unto the Lord, mourn not nor weep. Um, and then it happens again in verse 10. The priests say, this day is holy unto the Lord, don't be sorry, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then it happens one more time in verse 11. This day is holy, don't be grieved. You're being repetitive, priests. I'm grieving because I'm hearing God's law, and the Spirit's convicting me concerning sin. I'm I've just I've broken God's law, and so that's why I'm sorry. So why are you telling me three different times to be happy? It all centers around the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the joy that we have in Him is our stronghold from His own wrath. Because God, for those that are in Christ is merciful, and salvation is by grace, and it always has been by grace. I think sometimes we read the law like, okay, well, in the Old Testament, God was mean, and he was saving people through good works, works of the law, um, and that wasn't working, and so then in the New Testament, God was, changed things up, and now he's using grace. But the God of the Old Testament was a God who was merciful, merciful and ready to forgive, okay? Okay? Listen to Nehemiah chapter 9:13 talking about the God of the Old Testament. It says that he was ready to forgive. He was full of mercy and ready to pardon, okay? This is the God of the Old Testament. This is I'm sorry that was actually yeah, verse 7, he's of great great kindness, not forsaking people, merciful and gracious. That's Nehemiah 9.17. God is ready to pardon. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's of great kindness. And He doesn't forsake people. This is the Old Testament God being talked about here. Now, does this sound like a God who's going to strike someone dead the minute they do one thing wrong and send them to hell? No, it sounds like a God that's ready to pardon and forgive people of their sins. It sounds like a God that is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and a God who's not going to forsake you ever. No, never. This is the God of the Old Testament. And the law was always meant to just show us our sin and show us our need of a gracious and loving Lord. And when we see our need, when the Spirit convicts us of sin, we run into his name and find safety there. This is what the law was always supposed to do. And this is what the law was doing for the people here at the Watergate. Revival. Now, when I first was reading this verse, I had kind of an idea of what I wanted to say about the joy of the Lord is your strength. Because I had this idea of this feeling powerful and mighty in God's love. And that's true, that God's love does make us feel powerful. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But when I look closer at the text, of that Hebrew word that's translated strength, I think it's actually saying something different. Because this Hebrew word, it is... Um, Translated 30, I think it's M-O-A-Z, Moaz, maybe saying that wrong, but it's translated 37 times in the Old Testament. And every other time, it's translated place of refuge, stronghold, place of safety. So when Nehemiah writes, the joy of the Lord is your strength, the sense to the original reader was that the joy that you have in the Lord it's your stronghold. It's your place of refuge. It's your place of safety. From what? From his own wrath because of our breaking of the law. We run into his name and we find safety from his judgment. Those that, are in Christ, those that come to God and believe on him by faith in Jesus Christ, they are safe. They have a place of refuge and they're safe from God's own wrath. That's what he's saying. And friends, that's the gospel. That is the gospel. The gospel is, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen three, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's what Paul wrote. What scriptures were you talking about, Paul? Were you talking about Romans or 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians? No, Paul was talking about the Old Testament scriptures. They were pointing us to the fact that Christ died for our sins. And for those that come to Christ and believe on him... They are safe. They have a place of refuge. And the joy that they have in the Lord is that place of refuge. It's their stronghold. It's their stronghold from God's own wrath. And so there's no revival without the gospel. The law convicts us of sin, but then the good news of Jesus Christ is for those that believe on Him, there's safety. He's their place of refuge. And now they're safe from God's own wrath. The hymn writer wrote, Hell Sovereign Love That First Began, right? The hymn writer said those people first, they ran to Mount Sinai, right? And they said, okay, in Mount Sinai I'm going to find, say the law was given at Sinai. The law is good commandments. It's right ju- judgments and it's good statutes. I'm going to find safety there, right? But then we come to Mount Sinai and what happens? In, indignant justice stands in view, right? We, we go to Sinai's mountain, justice cries her frowning face. And what does she say? This mountain's no hiding place. Because you haven't honored your father and your mother. You've coveted. You've been idolatrous. Ere long. A heavenly voice I heard. And mercy's angel form appeared. Who led me on with gentle pace. To Jesus as my hiding place. And so when we, when we read that text. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What he's saying is. The Lord is your stronghold. He's your hiding place. Proverbs 18.21 says that. The name of the Lord, uh, sorry, it's Proverbs 18:10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous are running into His name, and they are safe. And they keep running to His name because God keeps them through faith, and He keeps them running back to His name to find safety there, because he's gracious, and He keeps us. He doesn't forsake people. He never did, he never does, he never will. And so we need the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is our hiding place. We have to have that knowledge. We have to have that for revival. And then the last thing we need, including, is is love. So we get the law of God, the gospel of God, and then the love of God. And there's, there's many verses that talk about God's love for us. It was God's love for Paul that constrained him and pushed Paul. But here, it's the love of God that works itself out in love to neighbor. We have to have that as evidence that revival is taking place. Now look with me back in the text. When the people understood that the Lord was their stronghold, the joy that they have in him was their place of safety, look what's happening in verse 12. They're sending portions and making great mirth. But what does it mean when it says they're sending portions? The ESV says they're sending to those that don't have enough. There's giving there is a servant-hearted service to neighbor that is coming as a result of a belief of the truth. They understand now that the joy of the Lord is their stronghold, and so now they're free. Now they are joyful, and now they're giving to other. 1 John um, uh, chapter 4 says that, How can a man love God, who he has not seen, if he doesn't even love his neighbor whom he has seen? there has to be love to neighbor as the essential evidence of love for God. I think about that scene at the end of Acts chapter 2 where it says that they had all things common and as many as had need, what did they do? The, the church helped them and they supplied them, not out of a government regulation that said everyone has to be equal. No, out of the kindness and goodness of their hearts for which God was working in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Because of God's grace in us, that works itself out in us showing grace to other people and us sending portions to those who don't have enough. So this is very much like that scene at the end of Acts chapter 2 where there was another revival. When revival takes place, servant-hearted service and love to neighbor takes place also. So where there's no love for God's people as a result of love for God... There's no revival taking place. This was the essential evidence that a revival actually happened. They were sending portions to those that didn't have enough. So when we're going to have revival, we have to have God's law. Because God's law convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. There's no conviction of sin unless we see God's law. God's going to show us in His Word. the, The Spirit will show us in the Word our sin. But then He'll show us the gospel. He'll show us the The good news that the joy that we have in Christ is our strength. And what he's saying is Christ is your stronghold. And the joy you have in him is your place of refuge. If you're a believer in Jesus today, you're safe. You have a place of refuge. If you're you're running into his name, you're safe there from his own wrath. You're safe from God's wrath because you're in Christ and you have his righteousness if you're a believer in Jesus today. And then lastly, the Third thing we need as evidence that a revival is taking place is servant-hearted service and love to neighbor, giving to those that don't have enough. It's the three things we need for a revival. May God bless us with a revival today at Heritage. May God bless his churches across the country with revival. May God keep us on our knees praying for a revival to take place. Thank you for your kind attention.